up, witches, and welcome to Witch Space. I'm Gemini. And I'm Scorpio. And today, we're talking about the book, Power of the Witch, The Earth, the Moon, and the Magical Path to Enlightenment, by Laurie Cabot, with Tom Cowan. So That's, a little is bit... Is it Cowan or is it Cowan? Cowan, Cowan... Because I read Cowan? it and I went, oh, that's funny, because Cowans are muggles. Right. All right, so maybe it's Tom. <laughs> I'm going to call him Tom Cowan. Cowan because I like it. Okay, Tom Cowan. So. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> I do hope that everybody knows who Laurie is. She is the official witch of Salem. And before you think, oh, what the heck does that mean? It means that in the late 1970s or mid-1970s, the governor of the time, Michael Dukakis, he actually bestowed upon her the state's Patriot Award and made her the official witch of Salem. So this is not just some cute little thing she's given herself. It was given to her by the governor of Massachusetts. Which is so, so. freaking cool. Yeah. Like that's, that's status. Like, because you can see people on Instagram being like, oh, I'm the witch of such place or I'm like this witch. No, she's like legally <laughs> yeah. the official witch. She which has been so recognized. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the book that we're reading um, from 19, 1989, and at that point, she had been practicing for more than 40 years. So tack on a couple of more decades to that. Yeah. She's also known for being the founder of the Witches League for Public Awareness. Which, which she discusses about in, this book. in the book. So I want to talk about it then. Yeah. So that's just a little bit of background on her. Her original store in Salem was Crow Haven Corner, which has changed hands. It's not her store anymore. She, her store now is, oh my God, what's it called? Enchanted. I don't know, but I've been in it. I know. Enchanted of Salem? I, possibly. Enchantments of Salem? No, I don't remember which one it is. I want to say it's Enchanted. Uh, I don't know. It's one of those two. In Salem. It's gorgeous. I mean, I, I really like it. I like, I like the layout. Um, and you really do have everything in that, in that shop, anything you would need. What impresses me the most about that store, besides the fact that you can get spells that she has created, you can buy, you know, things that she has made. The thing that's really impressed me are the statues. I don't yes. know where she gets them from. Cause if you go online and you try to go to different sources, you will not find the statues that you find there. And you will find statues of gods and goddesses that are, Maybe not the most well-known or, you know, maybe you've mm -hmm. only seen one statue to this goddess and now you go there and you're seeing something you have never seen. Um, it blows me away. Every time I go, I feel like I have to go pay respect to whoever's there because I want to see what she has. So, yeah, great store, great store. I don't know if they have an online presence. They may. I haven't um, looked it up. I just kind of wait and whenever I go to Salem, I make it one of my stops always. I will take a look. So when this podcast goes up, you can check our Instagram and see if I've uh, found anything. Sounds good. Sounds good. So let's, so let's get into start it. with a quote. So my quote is, the ancient power of magic is both spiritual and scientific. In recent years, I have met many new age people who ignore the need to ground themselves scientifically. We must know how to live in the world, not just between the worlds. And I love that because I feel like we've talked about this so much. And it's really nice to be validated by somebody who's so knowledgeable. You know, this idea that we can't just be woo-woo. And she even uses yeah. the term white lighters. We have to know something more. We have to be grounded in something. So this book, big spoiler, right? This book is really going to talk about both how they both work together. And I yeah. really enjoyed the book for that reason. But anyway, that was my quote. I don't know if you want to say something about the um, I the love intro and a lot of this. So I love everything that's happening here. One, because I think this quote really also encapsulates um, <laughs> when we were getting ready to talk about the podcast and we were talking about like, oh, like, do you like the book, blah, blah, blah. And I said to you, I went on a journey with this book. Mm -hmm. And I think your the quote you picked really encapsulates the journey that I went on, because being scientific and being a witch, especially for me, has been such, it's, it's been so integral to my journey 
on my path that there were parts of this where I was like frustrated by the science and then I had to take a step back and be like no you shouldn't that's wrong (laughs) you're being judgmental and so this book the, the journey that I went on for this book was really sort of stepping back and recognizing that while I personally have a, a frustration with like scientism and the way that people revere science but pretend it's not their religion, um, that's not what Lori's doing here. And in reality, a lot of the things she says are really helpful and insightful and do a really good job of bridging that gap, that grounding between the physical and the liminal. Um, I, I almost wish we had read it earlier. I feel like this would have helped me a little bit if we had read it like season two or season three because science for a lot of regular people out there kind of does end up becoming religion. And so it doesn't surprise me to see a book from 1989 that's like, well, let's put them together for real then. Um, And I like, I ended up really liking the way that Lori did it. And so it's just funny for you to be like, yeah, this is the quote that I picked. I'm like, oh, yes, the entire journey that I had with this book in the first quote. Perfect. You know, it's funny when you said, why didn't we read this sooner? I think there are so many books. And since I'm usually the one who picks them, I'm thinking about different things and conversations that we have. So I'm like, oh, you know what we should do? And I, mm-hmm. I didn't really do this in a way where I was like, oh, we're doing a podcast. So let me take out all these books and see which are the books that we should read now. You know what I mean? I just kind of yes. went like, okay, it is the beginning. So let's do Margaret Murray. Let's do Gardner. Let's do Robert Graves. Um, but there are so many other things that could be considered older. And while 1989 doesn't seem that old, you got to think it's 30 years after Gardner. And that's not yeah, a long and time. It's, it's like what? 30 years since the 90s? Yeah, oh God. S- yes. Right? Right? Yeah. I know, this fucks me up every time. So like if 1989 is 31, 32 years ago, it's, that's, a, that's an adult human. Yeah. That's a life. So I do think, and this is going to sound weird, I almost feel like if people are hesitating about reading Gardner, I could almost say, let's substitute this for Gardner's books. And you have, she mentions him, so you've got that mention. But I feel like what she talks about is, this is really the old book for the modern age, if that makes any sense. Like, no, I Gardner agree completely. is too old. This is just old enough, but just modern enough that we understand where the old stuff came from, but yes. we don't have to read it. Even though, again, I'm going to say, especially, if you're going to be Wiccan, I really do think you should read Gardner. Even if you're going to hate it, but you should read it. I, I just think everybody, you know, even if you're not Wiccan, I've said it before, we owe him a lot, whether we like him, hate him, all these older yeah. people. You know, you can but still we, want we a fist fight Gardner yeah. having read his books. It changes yeah. nothing. Because right. I still want to fist fight Gardner at all times. So. But I feel like I feel like if you're starting out, especially in Wicca, and you read this book first as like your foundational text instead yeah. of Gardner, then I think you go, oh, oh my God, I get this. So then when you read Gardner, maybe you're not as turned off or pissed off or anything like that because you go, yeah, I yeah. get it. This guy was really old. And she mentions some things that we'll get to in a second. This book gave me Starhawk energy. Mm. Um, yeah. And I... It was something that I really enjoyed because I think that both of those books together, you it's sort of like, how do I explain this? You know when like you're having a conversation with your grandparent and they're like telling you a story about the past mm-hmm. and like you love your grandparent and so you're invested in this story and it's like a, a bonding moment that you get to have together? That's mm-hmm. the energy that I get from both of those books, from Starhawk and from Laurie Cabot. Like... This is just two, there's just people telling you about the experiences they had and the the way that it changed and empowered them. And it, I like it, right? I like that energy. I like coming to, like, like, am I going to do any of the stuff that Lori Cabot does? Probably not. I'm not Wiccan. This is definitely very Wiccan-centered. Yeah. But it's just like, it's a nice, pleasant read. It makes you feel connected. It makes you feel you know, like you're being spoken to like a person and it's not condescending in any way. So I agree with you. I think this is very much like 
maybe maybe read this and then like a couple years later you read Gardner for like the historical context but this book the vibes are good I think if we're looking at an American elder yes I think it's Lori Cabot I think that this is the person that yeah you know we turn to and look at whether you agree with what she says or you know don't agree again times have changed yes but I think that she is definitely many steps above Gardner um, and yeah, I think that the way she tells a story, I think that you, you hit it right on the head. It's, it's good storytelling. Yeah. I don't know how much it is her and how much is Tom massaging the stories, but it's good work. So we're going to call it great teamwork. Yes. I like that. Yeah. So chapter one talks about the ancient power of magic. Yes. Which Great intro, like just the first two sentences, mwah, delicious. Certain things are everlasting. Magic is one of them. I love that. Delightful. And that's the kind of thing. Oh, what a great way to open this chapter. It's nice. Makes me want to read more. She also says that um, the witch's knowledge of herself and everything, divine power, nature, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, is best expressed expressed through myth and symbol and ritual and it kind of got me thinking about the myths that we read. Yeah. You know, and, you know, how we use them as witches. So the fact that she said that, she also brings in young. They do yes. the archetypes, which, again, that's bringing science into magic. This idea that young was talking about how everything can be taken back to certain um, archetypes. And these are the things we follow. And these are the symbols that we understand. So I like that she introduced that. Not later on. Right in chapter one, she starts going into it. I thought that was yeah. cool. It definitely, like, it's it's 1989, so uh, some of the referencing is a little bit old as far as, like, yeah. implying this great connection to a, a, an ancient religion kind of vibes. But um, but I think, and this, this was part of my journey, I think when you come at this, f- accepting the fact that part of this is about the myth and the legend and the historiosity, right, the, the legend of humanity... Mm. of course we're going to to talk about these ancient cultures and these ancient beliefs and these the animal masters who understood all of the creatures or the master storytellers and of course we're going to do that because why wouldn't we be calling on the ancestors why wouldn't we be trying to relate to the people that came before us um and you know well written give us the context she's going to talk about the celts she's going to talk about the greeks and the romans and the egyptians she's giving you reference to that right from the jump so we know what we're getting into um i liked the section on magical childhoods kind of being a way to be like if you think back you probably had something happen and you were like oh that's weird i'm not going to talk about but we all can think back to a weird experience in our childhood yeah and either you thought it was like nothing to think about or your parents explained it logically. And you were like, oh, yes, of course. Instead of saying to you, well, let's see, like, how is this going to develop in this child? So, um, yeah. Chapter two got me angry. Tell me. Say words. Okay. So it's the old religion. So it's discussing uh, different histories. Um, yeah. Celtic. It talks, I mean, okay, I'm just going to go right into it. I knew this stuff. It's not like after all these years, I didn't know this. Yeah. But again, the good storytelling in this book just brought up in me a lot of things that upset me. The Mm -hmm. idea that it just makes so much sense. There's only one, and we're going to do the gender binary, only one gender that is going to bring life, nourish life, create life. That's that's female. So the idea of how this that was so understood by so many different traditions, so many different cultures, mm-hmm. slowly got chipped away at until we have this angry warlock, warlike god. This angry and warlock god? I know I say warlock. I love it. <laughs> warlike, warlike, yeah. I know. Um, it just kind of upset me. I mean, she talks about the old Assyrian story of Adam and Eve, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Eve was created first. Then she even breaks down the Hebrew Jehovah. I am woman, I am life. 
when she takes the different parts of the sounds, like the different words inside mm-hmm. of that. Um, you know, it's just all these things about these matriarchal cultures and how that all started to change, not necessarily with Christianity, but obviously with Christianity. Yeah. But men, right? Men Are the started, worst, yeah. They had all this time on their hands to become these professional warriors. Women mm-hmm. were too preoccupied, you know, nurturing the earth and nurturing the children and nurturing each other. And men, it's almost like, what? what why? <laughs> Like, why do we even have, like, I don't even understand. But anyway, um, and I even wrote there, here, this whole history pisses me off I, <laughs> I love in my it. notes. You know why? Because I just think to myself, imagine if it had gone a different way. Imagine if men yeah. weren't jealous of women, what women could do, and instead said, how can I be a support to this? How can I be a good member to this? Because let's face it. You know, men have the seed and they are part of the whole process. Why not become more part of it instead of becoming what they became? You know, and then, of course, we go into chapter three, which is what they say about witches. And, you know, and then it just made me even matter because we get to St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine. St. Augustine actually says women may not even have a soul. Yeah, that tracks. And you know what I mean? Like just from chapter two to chapter three, I just found myself I just have a gaping hell mouth. Yeah. <laughs> I I definitely so part of me is sitting here like I kind of would like to have a whole episode where we just talk about gender. Um yeah. But I also think that that's like too much for one episode. Like so we know a lot of people that are getting pregnant right now and I personally have been thinking a lot about like the divine feminine and what does that mean and what is the archetype of motherhood and I think in the timeline that we're in, like the, you know, 2022, we're, we're kind of right societally in the middle of this period that came before that Lori Cabot is talking about where like the sexes were binary and antagonistic mm-hmm. versus before that the sexes were binary and like cohabitated. And now we're kind of entering into the sexes are no longer binary. Right. Because gender is so, a social construct anyway. Right. So. And I mean, we, we can go into the histori- the historical context of like different genders based on language, etc. But I think this is like a societal thing, right? Yeah. Where we're moving v- more away from this idea of binary and antagonistic. But also, is it... Is it imposition? Are we imposing then this binary antagonism on the previous structure by a, by saying that like, ah, yes, women were treated. Was gender the same construct in no. Cro-Magnon societies? Oh, but and then how do we, oh. right. And so uh, how can we, th- how, how can we fit into one podcast, let alone a whole season? the discussion of this and then the current mode and then what do we move into in the future and then what do these ideas mean in magic i mean like these are such intense concepts that i feel like is in which space is just kind of they kind of like float on top of the water but there's so much it's like a little iceberg and every book has the little tip of the iceberg where we talk about the goddess is so important and this is but like there could be there's a lot here there's a lot here and i think you know and i think i said this in another podcast i feel like jumping around a lot i i, I don't I'm <laughs> doing this linearly sometimes because there's another part of the book and of course now i don't know i have to go through all my notes to find it but she talks about how this idea of what it meant to be male at one point in different cultures is not what it means mm-hmm. to be male now being male is not necessarily you know, fitting yourself into a particular box. And we say all the time, especially in magic, about how, like, these quote-unquote binaries, you're supposed to have both, right? You have to have masculine and feminine energy. And if you reject entirely one energy, what does that do to you? Um, You're not being your whole self. And she mentions that in the book as well, that there are some covens and I think she said they were mostly gay covens. I think that's what she said, that they actually can recognize the both the masculine and feminine yes. within themselves because they're not afraid to explore that. Or when we come to cisgendered heterosexual society, a lot of people feel like, oh, 
I can't be, that's being masculine or that's being feminine. Instead of saying, let's, let me just be the entirety of who I am, which is everything. Are you Go ready ahead. for this? Oh, oh, yes. There is a straight man on RuPaul's Drag Race this season. Get out. I'm not even kidding. Okay, so this episode, by the, what I need you guys to understand is I watch these things delayed. So, like, we record them and I watch them with my mom and sister. So, like, I'm behind. Don't, like, if there's spoilers, don't tell me. I don't want to know. Um, but, yeah, there's a straight dude. They put a straight dude on the show. And, like, it's so, this This is why I think the, the gender conversation is so big. Because on the one hand, my immediate first response was, like, that's not okay. That's not appropriate. Why would you have a straight man on a show that's, like, for lifting up queer voices? But then I watched the, I watched, like, the episode where he came in, and it was, it was actually really wonderful, because he's talking about how, like, there's all these different ways to be queer, but you get told there's one way to be straight. Right. And his fears about being seen as less than are the same fears that gay men are experiencing, Right, your sexuality doesn't affect the fact that people look at you doing drag and sometimes have this vehement, violent reaction. Like, it doesn't matter if you're straight or trans or gay or cis. Like, that's the reaction is coming from somebody else. And so, having this, it like, this is what I'm saying. We're moving into this new age, gender wise, of like, what are these? What do these things really actually mean? And like. Do we, is there, is there a way to take what we're learning and what we, especially as witches, use in venerating the goddess as an archetype and to move that, move with that into a space where it's less, where it's less black and white? And it's not a thing we can answer right now on the podcast. It's not a thing that Lori Cabot answers in the book. It just brings up a lot of questions. The thing is, we can't answer it because we're only two people. What is going to happen in society is what's going to happen in society. I think the most we can do, and I think it's important to do as an adult, is to allow the the next generation, whether they're little kids, whether they're teenagers, to feel that what they feel is mm-hmm. 100% normal because what we've been doing this entire time is not normal. Yeah. What we've been doing up until this time saying, you have to fit a box. If you don't fit a box, you're wrong. You're weird. And then people don't want to try to express what they feel because you just don't. You just don't express yeah. what you feel, period, and you just get used to that. So I think the idea of allowing people to just express themselves um, I was lucky in that. And what I think is really funny is my husband, who is a completely different person from me, like just people ask me, like, is he anything like you? I'm like, no, there's nothing like me. I don't know why it works. Um, but sometimes he'll, he'll look at me. He goes, my God, you're such a guy. And I say, yes, <laughs> because in my life with my parents and my grandmother, my mother's mother, there was no such thing as what I could and could not do. Like, yeah, I, I could wear, even as a teenager, if I wanted to wear clothes that were considered masculine, I did. At that point, it's what? It was called androgynous, this idea that, you know, yes, people could be androgynous and you had androgynous Very women. David Bowie. Yeah, Very, you um, know. Iman? What was so, her name? His wife? Yeah. Iman. She was had, gorgeous. There was Grace Jones. There was Annie Lennox. You know, there was all yes. these people, you know, Boy George, you know, all these people in the 80s and 90s that, you know, made it okay if you were a teenager to just kind of like play with makeup and do whatever. Yeah. But I mean, I used to play with cars and I used to have guns and I used to have Barbies and I used to have, like, I played everything. I was never told mm-hmm. by my the immediate family that I should not express whatever it is I was thinking. I wouldn't learn that till I went to school, that I shouldn't say yeah. certain things. I shouldn't. And to this day, it's that stuff that gets me in trouble, whether it's at work, whether it's whatever, because <laughs> yeah. I just feel something and I say it because you know what? 
I'm tired of telling people bullshit. Why am I going to bullshit you about something? Like, yeah, I don't see the need for it. That can be seen as, well, certain genders don't have filters and certain genders. No, I just yeah. think all of this is just confusing people instead of letting them naturally express, especially as kids. Kids are going to be told early on, that's a girl's toy. That's a boy's toy. I follow somebody on TikTok whose son, she lets him play with, she, he wanted a Barbie. And then he wanted the long hair like Barbie. So she took a uh, one of her dresses and I don't know how she did this, but she like wrapped it up a little, little and before you knew it, he had long hair like his Barbie. And the comments he was getting, because then she did another mm-hmm. TikTok about it, was like, you, you're insane. Like, let this boy just do whatever. I was so happy because I went to get my nails done and a mom walked in. She's like, oh, we have an appointment. And usually it's a mom with a daughter. She was there with her son. He was getting a mani-pedi. Yes, and as was, he should. And I was so happy to see this. Like, it's like, let this little boy get his freaking nails painted. Like, you know, this whole idea that this belongs to girls. Like, what does that even mean? I'm tying it into my journey. Here we go. Because because reading that chapter, reading chapter two also gives me, like, the, I have a lot of, like, I need to be right about things. So I read chapter two and I was like, this is, like, a very specific interpretation of the history that, like, probably doesn't reflect reality 100%. Mm. You know, yes, this is, it's a very, like, anti-patriarchy, pro-feminist take. It's not historically accurate. Uh, and then you have to take a step back and be like, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> what is the, I'm, I'm reading a religious text about a woman who is talking about her religion and her spirituality and her witchcraft, and I'm going, that's not correct? Who cares? Why is it not correct for a boy to play with a Barbie doll? Why is it not correct to interpret history through a feminist lens? Like, why does that matter? And for me, that's that's my problem that I have to overcome as my life goes on. But sometimes you have to take a step back and be like, the quote-unquote correctness doesn't – it's not more important than your ability to be happy. And so if society tells you it is correct to do something a certain way or history is correct or, you know, these things are correct, okay, but do they work for you? Does it work? Is it helping? Did it make your life easier? Can you use it to explain a concept? Is it empowering? Like, those things matter too. Well, I also got to say, some of the things that she wrote here, I have read in other places. I do know that Christianity did work hand in hand with, you know, the pagan folk for a while. Christianity believed in reincarnation for a while. I mean, Christianity actually said some magic was okay. Yeah. Um... And then, of course, it didn't work out, so women became evil. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I think it would have been nice. The only the only criticism I'm going to have is that I think I would have liked some references. There were no references in the back of the book, not yeah. because I don't trust her, but because I would love to do more reading. There isn't enough reading that I've done on all this. So there I is personally, a list in the front of the book. Oh, yes, I did notice that, yeah. They're not references. They are simply a list that she says, these are things that I would highly recommend you further read. Um, But I do recommend, like, read the whole book and nothing but the book because I missed it the first time I read it. And when I went and, like, I found out my copy was signed. Um, I got a used copy, and I was, like, just skimming. And I was like, oh, my God, this is signed. And when I realized it's signed, I also found that list. So that list is very useful. Um, Can't believe I just ordered a used copy. Like, shout out to whoever donated their signed Lori Cabot book, because I have a signed one now. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, there is one thing she said that I cannot love her enough for, and I think this is when I said, I always liked you, lady, but I really like this. Um, there is no evidence that witches ever worked skyclad. She says that on page... 82. She's talking about Gardnerian witches, which she says mm-hmm. most of them do not follow Gardner to the T. And one of the things they don't do is work skyclad. And I know I've read this before. She's like, hey, yeah. you want to hide in the woods because people might come get you? You're going to wear a black cloak because you can hide in the dark in the woods. You're not yeah. hiding so much if you're naked. So Especially you know, not me. And, I'm you white know, as hell. <laughs> 
But we've said this too, was saying that, you know, yeah. he's talking about witches in England and um it gets cold. I'm not doing anything oh. naked in the cold. Brick like, titties out there. Crazy? Absolutely not. No, not happening. So I love that she does this. Um I love that yeah. she actually, you know, brings up, hey, this doesn't make any sense and let me tell you why. So she does say yeah. that. Um then she talks about the Witches League for Public Awareness that she brought together. And she brought them together because of the movie The Witches of Eastwick. She got 50 to Which 75 witches. So funny because I remember I watched that movie with my husband like a year or two ago. And I was like, this is such a cute, fun movie. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay, see, I never liked this film. I I didn't go into it being like, these are real witches. So I think that probably helped. But Will you please watch Practical Magic? If you liked that. Watch Practical Magic. I'm, it's, I, I can't, it's not that I'm avoiding it. That's an adorable movie. I don't doubt it's it. It's not scary. I've heard only good things about it. Well, anyway. Um, <laughs> so they wanted to protest because they wanted a disclaimer, just like they have one for The Godfather, which I didn't know The Godfather had a disclaimer. I've seen that I movie a million times. I have never seen The Godfather. Oh, my God. It's so New York. It's so New York. I just freaking love it to death. Does, isn't he from Jersey? Who? They, isn't the... Oh, no, that's the, that's Tony Soprano. Tony Soprano's from Jersey. Never yeah. mind. Oh, no. Different mobsters. Well, what I like about The Godfather and people are, are like, this is not depict... First of all, if you think this depicts Italian-Americans, and I feel like, you you know, you need to get your head examined. Like, you know... <laughs> are we allowed to just say some people are dumb? Are we allowed to do that on the podcast? <laughs> If you think that's what all Italian-Americans are like, you're kind of dumb. Yeah. That's it. But I loved, what I love about, I see, I love The Godfather Part 2. Because there's more than one part to The Godfather. Yeah, Part 3 is awful. But Part 2, what I like about Part 2 is that we see, well, first of all, Robert De Niro, who looks gorgeous in Part 2. But it's about him coming to the United States. And it shows, you know, Ellis Island. And this is Mm -hmm. like so many families. You don't have to be from Italy, obviously. So many families came to the U.S. that way and how they changed his name when he got here. And that's the experience of so many people. And then um, really finding his way. And they show like the old markets of New York and everything. And I'm just, I'm just fascinated. I'm in love with the city I was born in. What can I tell you? So, so yeah, so she wanted to have a disclaimer put at the beginning of the Witches of Eastwick that says, this is not how witches are they don't worship the devil blah blah blah. So of yeah. course in this movie three women have an affair with the devil and there you go so i thought it was interesting that that existed my question is i don't think we've heard anything from this organization like i don't remember i mean think about all the movies that have come yeah. out since then like the craft or even hocus pocus yeah or the witches with Angelica Houston. Like, I'm just thinking of all these movies that have come out and nothing. But again, I don't know much about that, so I'm just going to let that drop. And then, of course, she talks about the difference between witchcraft and Satanism. Which, again, I think it's sad that in 1989 you still have to go over it, but I'm glad she did because there might be some people who absolutely need to know because yeah. they may still confuse it. Um, then she talks about the craft of the wise, right? The history of the pentacle, what it means, yes. becoming a witch. You know, even, you know what I really liked? She, no one ever talks about this idea that silver, when you're wearing silver jewelry, you're really trying to draw in the energy of the moon versus gold is the sun. Mm-hmm. And people don't really, what? It makes Am so I much aware sense. Of that? Oh. No, I just, <laughs> well, I don't remember what you texted me about the other day, but you were like, did you know this? And I was like, yeah, I know that, that witch fact that you just told me. That's what okay, it sounded I don't know like. What it was. Okay. No, it, it makes me think of like my sister and myself because I'm a, I'm a silver person and she's a gold person. And like, she's also very solar and I'm very lunar. So like that tracks. Right. Like I, I knew the fact, but I didn't connect the fact until right now. And like, you can kind of tell about a person, which side they are of that coin based on what jewelry they wear. I'm going to be observant now. I'm going to like keep my eyes peeled for what color jewelry people are wearing. Right? Okay, what else you talk about? She talks about covens. She talks about the magic circle, the wheel of the year. Okay. Yes. So I want to talk about the wheel of the year. Because Do it. We've, we've made mention of this in the past. Repeatedly. And I talked about how, you know, Dainos had a wet season and a dry season. And those were like their two main things. And then she says the Cal tattoo seasons, fire and ice. 
and reading that again things that you know but you're not really thinking about mm-hmm. and reading that in this book and I went oh my god like I, and she mentions this also in the book when we're talking about magic it does not belong to one culture she says there's magic across the planet yes so when we see little things like this that kind of like brings it all together and makes you go oh you have that but my culture has this oh what does your culture have and you realize bitch we're talking about the same wheel we're talking about the same type of things we're just fitting it to our geography and Mm -hmm. isn't that what magic is supposed to be we're supposed to find the magic that is around us so if you're in puerto rico you're not going to talk about fire and ice there's no ice that's true (laughs) unless it's in your i'd be concerned if there was you know but yeah. there is going to be a dry season, a wet season. And when it comes to places like New York, we're going to have summer, spring, winter, fall. We have all yeah. that. So for us to follow that wheel just makes so much more sense. Even if you're not following it in the sense of, well, I'm not traditionally Wiccan or anything like that. Yeah, but I think it does make sense. Because for the most part, all witches or all magical people are following their environment. So for any witch, whether they are Wiccan or not, to say, yeah, I really go with the seasons, to me, makes so much sense. You're just in tune with your surroundings, period. No matter what your religion is as a witch going afterwards, I don't think there's anything wrong with people saying, I really want to follow the the wheel of the year because I think she makes a good case for what it really is. And I think that this is my journey again about needing to be right all the time. Um, When I get to sections like these in the books, sometimes I get frustrated because I feel like oh, here we go, we're talking about altars again, or we're talking about the Wheel of the Year again. But every time we read one of these books, there is a nugget in this section where I'm like, I didn't think about it like that. And so, you know, especially for those of you who are Wiccan, definitely read this. I I really liked her take on the Wheel of the Year. I I liked, this was such a stupid little thing that I liked, but she makes a mention about wands. But, like, you can buy expensive wands studded with gems and crystals for as much as 2000 to $3,000 in a witch shop. Most wands are much cheaper. We've re- Every single book we've ever read has been like, you don't have to spend a ton of money on tools. But for her to be like, no, yeah, $2,000 wands exist. It's like, that girl knows what she's talking about. She is part of the community, and she has looked around, and she is referencing shit that is real. Like, it was just a nice moment to step back and be like, ah, yes, I could spend $2,000 if I wanted to. I could have a bookshelf with $10,000 worth of crystals if I wanted to. Right? I don't have to, but I can. Right? And even to go on, artists in the craft make wonderful items and buying them helps support our brothers and sisters. Yeah, when I think about it in the context of the way she talks about it, it makes me feel less shitty when I spend money versus some of the other books we've read where they're like, oh, you know, you don't need to buy anything. You, your tools are whatever you want. Like that makes me feel like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be buying things. Like, nah, you know what? Sometimes sometimes you do want to buy a $2,000 crystal wand because you're bougie and you have $2,000 to spend. Fucking go for it. YOLO. My favorite wand was made in the 90s by me. And I put crystals in it. I spent so much time. I found the branch. I don't even know where I found the branch. It was just like this whole thing. It became a mm-hmm. whole thing for me to make this wand. And it lasted about 10 years before things started falling off. And mm-hmm. I said, okay. Obviously, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. It was just my first time making something. It lasted yeah. 10 years. I should be really proud of myself. But part of me was like, do I put it together again? And I said, no. I think this wand is telling me it needs to go home. And I yeah. did wind up burying the whole thing, you know. That's nice. Yeah. I was just like, okay, you can go now. Thank you so much for your help. Um, yeah. And then I can, I can tell you I've never gotten attached to another wand. So, chapter five is the science of witchcraft and chapter five is where my journey turned (laughs) i took a turn i went it was this is the climax of the book for me okay okay so i have just this immediate negative reaction to scientism or like um you know spiritual physics or like those concepts and i have a, a really strong negative reaction to them one Um, because I am, for all intents and purposes, still kind of a scientist, right? Am I, am I an actual scientist? No, but I, I was trained for many years to think like one. I am married to one. It's just part of the way that my brain works. 
And so I'm reading this story and she's telling us about the light in the picture of the National Geographic. And then she's talking about how light is magic. And I'm like, oh, this is, it's such a fundamental misunderstanding of the physics. And, and it, you know, uh, I don't like the way that you're doing this because I think you're taking the physicists out of context. And yes, there are lots of very spiritual and religious physicists, but, and I get myself into this tizzy, right? But then as you read through this chapter, you kind of realize this is almost historical for her. Um, and, and I like it, especially the way she references like Hermes and her, Hermetics and that concept. Like she's not, take, she's not just taking science out of science to be like, oh, I know, I know scientific things. And now, no, this is a, a progression of the way humans throughout history have approached learning and understanding about the world. Yeah. And I, I I literally had to start the chapter over. I had to go back to the beginning of the chapter and be like, is she really being condescending or is this me? And she's not. She's not. No. She's just telling a story the whole time. Look, I love it. She says, witchcraft is a system based on hypothesis that can be tested under controlled conditions. And she's right. She's right. I don't know if everybody would be happy with that. Like, I love that it's there because I agree with her. Yeah. Um, I wasn't happy when I read it. But when I went back, because when I read it the first time, I said, well, a hypothesis is part of science and you shouldn't be co-opting scientific terminology for something that is not scientific. You're not doing a real experiment. This isn't a real hypothesis. And then when I went back and started the chapter over, I was like, all right, bitch, you're being real judgmental for somebody who is just saying experimentation is necessary in witchcraft. This was the climax. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she says that she teaches that in her classes. You should be able to verify. Yeah. Like, how often do your spells go right? Um, what were the conditions of the spell? The the wording, the ingredients, uh, the astrological considerations, like if you write everything down and then you write down what happened, what were the effects? You know, she says you should be able to, and I think a lot of witches have said this, the spell that goes in your book of shadows is the one you have tested, you have tweaked, and you can yes. honestly say that if you do it like this, like this, and like this, you're going to get this result. If you don't, then obviously that spell has got to be bullshit because spells have got to be scientific in that way. Witches have got to see their work this way that, you know, if something didn't work, and I know we also said maybe it wasn't meant to be, right? Maybe you're supposed to learn something from it. And that's true too. But you've got to at least have tested it enough times to know it does work. What is the point of calling something your spiritual practice if it is not going to be practiced? Right. I loved reading the seven hermetic laws. Yeah. Um, one, because, again, it was it. I had to take my brain and tell it to shut the fuck up for a minute. Because I think that we reference things like this in witchcraft, in, like, modern New Age stuff all the time, and don't really know where it comes from. Like, this is the first time that I'm reading ever about the seven hermetic laws, but I've definitely heard of, like, the law of correspondence oh, and yeah. the law of vibration before. Yeah, yeah. Everybody says, as above, so below. Everybody. Yeah. And what is it talking about? Do you know what I mean? Yes. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's nice that she has put this in here because a lot of the things here we know, but probably never knew that it was part of the seven uh, hermetic laws. So, yeah, I agree. And some of the things we know, but but we know because we, like, picked them up from other people. And it's nice to just be like, here is the information. You know what I like about one of the laws? We Which We were just one? talking about it. The law of gender. Oh, yes. Everything has both masculine and feminine components. That's yes. it. That's it. Everything. You sitting out there, you got both <laughs> masculine and feminine components. Oh, you ready for this? Yeah. We are not locked into a static gender role, no matter what our sex or how hard we try to live up to the culturally determined myth about real men and real women. Yeah. rejecting your masculinity or your femininity is only going to hurt you. You're only going to be made worse 
by doing that. Yeah. You know, I think about the different generations as they've evolved. And I think about the decades. Like you think about the 70s and mm-hmm. the first time you have unisex clothing and women are wearing jeans and guys are wearing long hair, you know? Yeah. And then you have the 80s and you have, you know, this androgynous look that carried over into the 90s and everybody was grungy and everybody looked the same, you know? Um, yeah. And I almost feel like when you, I think about the generation now, like at school, sometimes they get so upset with older generations and I tell them there were steps that people were taking because yeah. this was deep. This was deeply entrenched in our society. Yes. So the fact that everyone took baby steps, you know, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. I don't know what happened in the 2000s. What was the 2000s known for? 2000, 2010. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think the 2000s started coming back into um, like a, ver- a much more strict delineation of gender because we were seeing like hyper femme um, influencer types. True. Um, it was, you had a lot of reactionary, but also I come at this mostly from like mainstream. And I think that the, the alternative scene had a very different understanding of gender because I think like preppy in the nineties into the two thousands was still very gendered versus grunge, which was, I think less. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't know what it was. like I'm trying to think back to my youth and I'm like I just guys with eyeliner were hot guys with eyeliner are still hot let's just be honest with ourselves here like masked girls are hot like that beauty and that strength combined like I, I don't know like I don't think I don't know. I don't think... Th- I'm just trying to think of, like, when you said alternative yeah. scene, I don't think that we really saw genders any particular way. I don't think we really cared. The only thing that bothered me, and it still bothers me to this day, because it still happens to me, okay? I have a gripe with the fashion uh, tell industry. Tell me... I love this. Tell okay. me your gripes. So, men, quote-unquote, men's cargo pants, have better pockets than women's cargo pants, all men's pants have better pockets than women's pants. Okay, but I can't buy men's pants because I can't go based on my waist because I have hips, so they don't fit. And if I buy them to fit my hips, now I have this huge gap around my waist. So I think that um, we got to work on clothing. Yeah, actually, would let's let's do this. I would love to have a gripe about this. Um, <laughs> de- the fact that society no longer values tailoring is the single, I think, I truly think the single most powerful thing society has ever done to gender people. Um, Because tailoring was ubiquitous for hundreds of years. Um, You would either do it yourself or someone would do it for you. Um, But the fact that, like, nobody buys clothes and goes to a tailor is the reason why, like, we as women can't fucking buy. Like, I haven't bought jeans in over seven years. Because I stopped, I was like, I'm no longer doing the thing where I go into a fucking store and I have to try on 16 pairs to figure out what's going to fit the waist, hip, butt, thigh ratio. I'm not doing it. But if tailors were a thing that were like easily accessible and not an incredibly expensive amount of money, or if I knew how to sew <laughs> and had free time, um, capitalism is a plague, then I could buy pants that didn't fit and make them fit. And I could keep retailing clothing when I got a little bigger or got a little smaller or whatever happened. Like True. the fast fashion forces you into a gender binary because you learn how to shop for being a quote unquote girl or a quote unquote boy. And then that's it. Because why am I going to yeah. go through all the effort to learn how to shop like a boy now when I just spent 15 years crying in, in changing rooms? Okay, so whenever people have talked about that we shouldn't have separate like men and women's sections. That's the first thing I think about. I go, okay. <laughs> because I don't want to cry in it. Yeah. I have a hard enough time buying clothes. Yes. Um, so this idea that now I'm really not going to know what to buy. Yeah. Like, I'm really not going to know what to do. It's just, it's sad. No, I listen, it is a fully selfish thing. I do not want, 
Uh, I would like to have single person changing rooms and like not have to interact with anybody. I don't want anyone to know that I'm crying in a changing room because the pants don't fit. That's just, I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> like, I don't want to go there. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So I didn't think this book was going to, I didn't think I was coming into this book to talk about gender, but boy, are we talking about gender. We really are. Okay. So then she talks about alpha and getting into an alpha state so that yes. you can, you know, um, we alter our perceptions so we can be free from whatever the time space constructs and whatnot. And yes. she, she talks about how so many different cultures have done this. We've got the Oracle of Delphi is one that she mentions, this idea that many cultures have gotten into these altered states and that you can do this. You don't have to take drugs to do this. You can do this simply. She does give you steps on how yeah. to get into an alpha state so that you can, you know. You this is that. her preferred meditation. She gives you lots of variety with the chapter. I don't know if it's a thing that I plan on doing, but I do think it's very interesting. It's one of those yeah. things where I'm happy I read it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's something I want to try. I definitely want to try it. Then she's got a chapter on everyday magic. We don't really have to go into it. It's spells. It's charging yeah. tools. It's healing. Then she's got the witchcraft. Oh, the witch is life milestones, which is like hand fasting, uh, death, which I thought was really interesting. Yes. And all that stuff. The maiden mother crone all that stuff then she talks about which children and she says that children lose their magical sensibilities slowly over the first 10 to 11 years and it's because kids are being told that there's, there's only one reality there's only one way to be there's only one yeah. way to color this page there's only one way to build this instead of just letting them run free and i thought wow like i hadn't really thought about it like that but i remember when i was in either kindergarten or first grade i used to write with both hands I would get tired with one, I'd pick up the other, and a teacher said to me, no, only write with your right hand. And now I think back and I go, bitch, you could have been why'd you do that? Yeah, like, why'd you do that to me? Like, who was it hurting? Oh, my God. I was hurting somebody by writing with both hands? Yeah. Like, yeah, that upset me. Um, so, yeah, so what I like about this book is that I don't really see a lot of chapters on children. Or how to raise children. Yes. Or, you know, as a witch and whatnot. And again, I think this is going to depend on every single person. But she's not necessarily talking about how to initiate a child or anything. It's not like that. It's about, you know, be conscious of the words that you're saying even when you're pregnant. Right? They should be affirming to the child. She mentions nursery rhymes. Rockabye baby. And the baby falls cradle and all. Is this really something that should be going into the consciousness of this child? Mm -hmm. Right. So she just tells you like to just think about stuff, which I just think is, is I don't have to even be in a witch book. I think this is a good advice for anybody. Right. But she does mention things about, you know, um, maybe you do want to have an anointing ceremony. Maybe yeah. you want if you have a coven or you have witch friends, if you have a child to do their birth chart and see what are they lacking. And then witches can give those gifts to them, little spells to help the child in the things that they're naturally going to be weak in because we're not perfect people. So yeah. we're all going to need help in something. I think I liked, you know, talking about alpha, doing meditation, talking to your child about dreams. I, the more that I do this, the more that we do this, I like the books where it's just like, hey, let's talk about everyday life and the things yeah. in your everyday life. And you know what? For a lot of people, kids are everyday life. Yeah. Even if you never, your child never becomes a Wiccan or you never incorporate your religion with them, none of these things, like, you don't have to tell your kid, oh, I'm doing a protection spell for you. But if right. you're a witch, what would that look like? What does that mean? And it, it's just nice, you know? I think a lot of the older books were very, like, high-minded, very, like, philosophical. You know, we're creating a whole new religion. And it's nice to just be like, we are regular-ass people doing regular-ass shit. Here is some regular-ass shit that you can do for your regular-ass life. And, you know, I was raised differently. Pagan, but not Wiccan. And I can tell you that as I got older, my mother would explain the things that she's doing to you know, for me. She would explain what my asavache, my protection was. She would mm -hmm. explain this necklace was made when you were pregnant to protect you. Like, oh, wow, like I'd seen it for years. Didn't know that it had any sp special purpose. You know, so let the child be curious and answer their questions. Talk to them 
openly about what it is you do and don't force them to do anything because the child will either do it or not. But I don't think there's anything wrong with explaining in a child appropriate way, in the age appropriate way, because you can explain things differently at three years old than you are at 10. You know, just explaining it to them and letting them explore and letting them, asking them, what is it that they see or hear or, you know, imagine or dream? Because if they have these um, gifts, and she says, everybody's a psychic. Everybody's got something. Yes. So as their kids, it's easier to have them talk about it. And they don't feel so weird about it because it's a natural part of them. And they start to realize that their bodies and their minds and whatever else you want to talk to them about spirit and soul, that it's all who they are and it's all okay. And everybody's going to be different. You know, everyone's going to look at it differently and they can feel more confident in who they are. One of the things she says is it's also important for kids not to think that everything's going to be solved. You know, you may not have a solution for everything and that's okay. If you have the coping mechanisms, which that's where the meditation and everything comes in handy. Yes. Then you have a healthier child that goes, all right, I can't fix this. Nobody can fix this. I'm kind of stuck. I'm taking this math class I hate. These are the kind of complaints <laughs> I hear all the time yes. as a teacher. You know, um, it's really funny because I said to them, you know, I know there are students that hate me too. And they're like, hate you? Why would anybody hate you? I'm like, that's because I haven't assigned anything yet. Wait till I assign something again. And then yeah. you go, ah, that bitch is making me do this. You know, so... But yeah, so you're right. It's that everyday stuff that we can do to help ourselves, that we can do to help our families. Yeah. You know, and just the community in general. So I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, I am happy that by the time we got to doing the podcast that I had gotten over my bullshit because I think this is a great book. And I think it's good to recognize when we're reading books, everybody, when you say, I hate this. This is this is ridiculous. To take a step back and go, what did it trigger in me? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And Why then go, do oh, I hate this? Yeah. yeah. Because usually it's more like that. It's more like you have to work through something, which is fine. And you know what? You may not figure it out by the end of the book. Sometimes yeah. you read a book and you go, I hate this. I don't know why. You put it down. Come back to it later on. You know, a yeah. year, two years. By that point, you may figure out what it was. So I recommend the book, especially if you're Wiccan. Um, yeah. And if you've never read it, or you've been curious about Laurie Cabot, and you know, again, somebody who we owe a lot to as American witches, somebody who is very vocal, who was willing, she had two daughters, and still was willing to put her face out there and say, this is who I am. Yeah. And she had to take a lot of bullshit because there was one interview that she talks about where somebody just brought it back to she worships the devil and it's like, no, Mm -hmm. that's not what we do. So she really dealt with a lot just so that the rest of us later on could just walk around and be who we are. Yeah. So, yeah. So thank you, Lori Cabot. Thank you for existing and for writing this book. And thank you, our amazing audience, for existing and being wonderful. We love you guys. We wouldn't make this podcast without you. And thank you, Kano and more, because now all I do is I go back... <laughs> And I listen to our intro and outro music like every day. Like if I'm feeling stressed, that's what calms me down. I just listen to it and go, this is beautiful. This is perfection. And we love you. Thank you. And remember, if you're following the moons, you're following us. Mm